Section 31 of The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Diana Vandervis. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1, Mammals, by Charles Lewis Cornish, Editor. The Prairie Dogs and Marmots, The Beaver, The Dormice. The Prairie Dogs and Marmots Between squirrels which live in holes in the ground and the marmots and their relations, no great gap is found. These creatures drop the climbing habit and increase that of burrowing. In disposition, most of them are still very squirrel-like, though they gain something in solemnity of demeanor by never going far from their holes. A prairie dog or marmot is like a squirrel which has left society and settled down in a suburb. The little creatures known in America as prairie dogs have in northern Europe and the steppes of Asia some first cousins called susliks. Both live in colonies, burrow quickly and well, feed on grass, and have a habit of sitting bolt upright outside their holes, keeping a lookout for enemies. The prairie dogs also bark like a little dog when alarmed. Before going to sleep, the latter always carries the dry grass on which they slept out of their burrow, and carefully bite up into short lengths a fresh supply to make their beds. The Sussex and prairie dogs are of a khaki color, like the sand in which they delight to burrow. Everyone has heard that the little burrowing owls live in the same holes in company with the prairie dogs, and that the rattlesnake sometimes eats both the young prairie dogs and the young owls. An acquaintance of the writer, who had killed a rattlesnake, actually took a young prairie dog from its mouth. The snake had not struck it with the poison, but had begun to swallow it uninjured. It was still alive and recovered. The Suslick was once found in England. Its remains, with those of other steppe animals, are found in the river gravels and brick earth in the London basin. The prairie dogs form a kind of connecting link between the Suslicks and the true marmots. They have short ears, short tails, rounded bodies, and possess great powers of digging. When a prairie dog has nothing better to do, it usually spends its time either digging holes or in cutting up grass or anything handy to make its bed with. Young prairie dogs are not so large as a mouse when born. The adult animals feed almost entirely on grass and weeds in their wild state. They seem quite independent of water and able to live in the driest places. The alpine marmot is a much larger species than the prairie dog. It lives on the Alps, just below the line of perpetual snow. From 5 to 15 marmots combine in colonies, dig very deep holes, and like the prairie dogs, carefully line them with grass. They also store dry grass for food. In autumn, they grow very fat and are then dug out of the burrows by the mountaineers for food. Young marmots used to be tamed and carried about by the Savoyard boys, but this practice is now rare. The monkey is probably more attractive to the public than the fat and sleepy marmot. Marmots are about the size of a rabbit and have close iron-gray fur. Shooty, the naturalist of the Alps, says of the marmots that they are the only mammal which inhabits the region of the snows. No other warm-blooded quadrupeds live at such an altitude. In spring, when the lower snows melt, there are generally small pieces of short turf near their holes, as well as great rocks, prepices, and stones. Here they make their burrows, outside which they feed. 
with a sentinel always posted to warn them of the approach of the eagle or the lammerger. The young marmots, from four to six in number, are born in June. When they first appear at the mouth of the holes, they are bluish-gray. Later, the fur gains a brownish tint. The burrows are usually at a height of not less than 7,000 or 8,000 feet. Winter comes apace. By the end of autumn, the ground is already covered with snow, and the marmots retire to sleep through the long winter. As they do not become torpid for some time, they require food where there is none accessible. This they store up in the form of dried grass, which they cut in August and leave outside their burrows for a time to be turned into hay. The alpine marmot is also found in the Carpathians and the Pyrenees. Another species, the bobak, ranges eastward from the German frontier across Poland, Russia, and the steppes of Asia to Kamchatka. In Ladakh and western Tibet, a short-tailed species, the Himalayan marmot, is found sometimes living at a height of nearly 17,000 feet. The golden marmot is found in the Pamirs. The beavers. The beavers are classed as the last family of the squirrel-like group of the rodents, and the largest creatures of that order in the northern hemisphere. The value of their fur has caused their destruction in great measure where they were once numerous, and has led to their total extirpation, where there is evidence that they existed as a not uncommon animal. They were formally distributed over the greater part of Europe. In England, semi-fossilized remains show that they were not uncommon. In Wales, beaver skins were mentioned in the year 940 in the Laws of Howell Da, and in 1188, Geraldus stated that they were living on the River Typhi in Cardiganshire. Beavers were formerly found in France, especially on the Rhone, where a few were still said to survive. In Germany, Austria, Russia, Poland, and in Sweden and Norway, on the rivers Dwina and Pechora, and on the great rivers of Siberia. A few still remain in two districts of Norway, and some are known to frequent the Elbe in 1878. The Moldau in Bohemia is also credited with a colony but parts of the Danube are believed to be the chief haunt of the European beaver at the present time. The American beaver, though its range has greatly contracted, is still sufficiently numerous for its fur to be a valuable item in the winter fur sales. The beaver's tail is flattened like a paddle and covered with scales. Its hind feet are webbed between the toes, it has sharp claws which aid it in scratching up mud, and a thick, close fur with long brown hairs above, and a most beautiful close underfur, which, when the long hairs have all been removed, form the beaver fur of which hats were once made, and trimmings for ladies' jackets and men's fur coats are now manufactured. There are two separate lines of interest in connection with the animal, political and zoological. The value of the fur was anciently such that when the first French explorers began to search the Canadian lakes and later when the Hudson's Bay Company succeeded to the French Dominion, the history of Canada was largely bound up with beaver catching and the sale of the skins. In the early days of the company, the standard of trade of the Northwest was a beaver skin. For nearly a century, the Northern Territories were organized, both under French and English rule, with a view to the beaver trade. The beaver was, and is, the crest of the Canadian Dominion. The beaver's engineering feats have for their object to keep up a uniform depth of water in the streams where they live. 
On large rivers, there is always enough water for the beaver to swim in safety from its enemies and to cover the mouth of the hole which it makes in the bank, just as a water rat does. But on small streams, especially in Canada, where during the winter the frost prevents the springs from running, there is always the danger that the water may fall so low that the beavers would be left in shallow water, a prey to the wolverine, wolf, lynx, or human enemies. To keep up the water, the beavers make a dike or dam across the stream. This they go on building up and strengthening until they have ponded back a large pool. In time, as they never seem to stop adding to their dam, the pool floods the ground on either side of the stream and makes a small lake. It flows over the parts of the bank where their holes are. These also become filled up because the beavers carry into them every day fresh quantities of wood chips to make their beds. The beavers then scrape out the earth on the top, pile sticks over this, plaster the sticks with mud, and so build a dome over their bedroom. In time, this is raised higher and higher, and the artificial lake rises too, and the complete beaver lodge surrounded with water is seen. The old trappers who found these in situ imagined they were built at once and outright in the water. The experiments and observations of Leonard's Lee in Sussex where Sir E. G. Loder had kept beavers in a stream for ten years, show that the evolution of the lodge is gradual and only incidental. But the building of the dike, the cutting of the trees, and the making of the pool are done with a purpose and definite aim. What this is, and how done, is explained in the following description of the beaver colony at Leonardsley. Their first object was to form in the brook a pool, with water maintained at a constant height to keep the mouth of their burrow in the bank submerged during the droughts of summer. To this end, they built a dam, as good a specimen of their work as can be seen even in Canada. Its situation was carefully chosen. A small oak, growing on what appears to have been a projection in the bank, gives support to the work. It may be concluded that this was part of their intention. For though they have cut down every other tree in their enclosure to which they had access, except for two or three very large ones, they have left this small tree which supports the dam untouched. Later, when the dike was stronger, they cut it down. Above this stretches the dam, some twelve yards wide, and rising five and a half feet from the base to the crest. The beavers built it solidly of battens of alder, willow, larch, and other straight-limbed trees, cut into lengths of from two to three feet. The bark of each was carefully gnawed off for food, and the whole work, constructed of these cut and peeled logs, has a very regular and artificial appearance. Small twigs and sticks are jammed in between the battens, and the interstices are stuffed with mud, which the beavers bring up from the bottom of the pool in their mouths and push in with their feet, making the whole structure as watertight as a wall. This dam converted what was a narrow brook into a long lake, some 50 yards by 15 or 20 yards broad. Later, the beavers made another larger dam below this, cutting down some more trees. One tree gave them a great deal of trouble. It was a beach, 40 feet high, and hard to gnaw. So they waited till the water rose around it and then dug it up. When the large dam was made, quite a considerable lake had formed below the first. They then neglected their first dam and let the water run out of the top lake into the lower one. At the time of writing, there are five old beavers and a family of young ones at Leonardsley. 
The work done by these beavers, so few in numbers, shows how large colonies may alter the course of rivers. The Dormice There are a considerable number of animals, even in England, which hibernate. Most of these feed largely on insect food, which in winter is unobtainable in any great quantity. Consequently, the hedgehog and the badger, which live largely on snails and worms, go to sleep in the famine months. So does the sleepiest of all, the dormouse. This alone would show that this little rodent probably feeds on insects very largely, for if it only ate nuts and berries, it could easily store these and find a good supply also in the winter woods. It has been recently proved that dormice are insectivorous and will eat aphids, weevils, and caterpillars. But a dormouse hibernates for so long a time that one might imagine its vitality entirely lost. It sleeps for six months at a time and becomes almost as cold as a dead animal and breathes very slowly and almost imperceptibly. Mr. Trevor Bate says that if warmed and made to awaken suddenly in the winter, it would die in a minute or two, its heart beating very fast, like a clock running down. Before their hibernation, dormice grow very fat. There is a large species found in southern Europe, which the Romans used to eat when in this fat stage. In winter, dormice usually seek the nest of some small bird and use it as a sleeping place. They pull out and renew the lining or add a roof themselves. Into the interior, they carry a fresh supply of moss and sleep there in great comfort. Their great enemy at this time is the weasel. There are two main groups of the dormice, divided by naturalists in reference to the structure of their stomachs. The South African graffiers have short tufted tails. The hibernating habit is confined to the more northern species. End of section 31. Recording by Diana Vandervis. Winnipeg, Manitoba.